Gospel of John, chapter 1. Gospel of John, chapter 1. Follow along with me as I read our text this morning. I want to begin reading in verse number 6. We'll read 6 through 8, verse 15, and then verse 19 through 28. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Verse 19, And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he said, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word this time. We can gather together this morning. We pray that you would uh, speak to us and uh, work in our hearts and lives in those places where we most desperately need you. Lord, we pray that you would do that uh, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. I'm not sure how many of you were awake this morning, but at 6.27, the sun uh, rose. In fact, it was so foggy, we were sitting here praying, and you couldn't tell, uh, you couldn't tell it made much of a difference. I would say for most of you, you were asleep, and if not, I doubt you had some kind of special alarm that went off at 6.27 this morning to testify to you, by the way, the light is on outside. There's uh, something about the beauty and the goodness, the joy which the light gives to us, the sun gives to us as it warms the earth, uh, as it goes upon its course, dispelling darkness and revealing to us everything around us that we see that is beautiful and lovely and sometimes difficult. But you know what? It really doesn't matter whether you embrace the sunrise this morning or push snooze on your alarm and decided you'd wake up at 727. Nothing you could do would hinder its coming. You could not hinder it from rising and running its course just as it will set this evening and whatever time that our clocks tell us it will set or our phones tell us it will set. But the same thing is true. Not only can we not hinder the rising of the sun, but we cannot help it. None of us wring our hands worrying whether or not the sun's going to come up in the morning if we do enough good or do enough work. 
It rises and sets based upon its own course, its rotation, the pattern which God has given to it. It does it all by itself. And we enjoy the fruit of it. Well, in contrast to that, in the Bible, when it comes to the light of the gospel, and that's what the subject is in chapter number 1 of John, especially his prologue, which is verses 1 through 18, light has come into the world. We see earlier in verse number 3, All things were made through him, speaking of the word, and without him was not anything made that was made, and in him was life, and the life was the light of men. In verse number 5, he says, And the light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In fact, you could skip the prologue about John or the reference to John and pick up the same conversation. In verse number 8, he was not the light, but came to bear witness to the light. And so there is this, this... introduction were given to the gospel of jesus as as being descriptive of light shining in the darkness and the tense is it's presently actively continually shining in the dark world probably intentionally used by god and the holy spirit and by john showing that what happened in jesus's lifetime was still applicable still at work still in effect in ad 90 when he wrote the gospel The light of Jesus Christ continues to shine into the world. To penetrate the darkness and dispel the darkness of our day. It was this light that he wants us to understand which is the life of men. Life giving brilliance, glory coming from God. We said last week, for those of you who are with us, this light not only is life giving in that sense, but it is that light which dispels the darkness of our ignorance and blindness spiritually. It has opened our eyes and it, it brings us to the reality of who God is and who we are and the way of salvation. Light is shining in a dark world and the darkness cannot overcome it. Here, John gives us this description of light and this overwhelming victorious kind of image the victory of the light which has come to dispel the darkness it is the light which gives not only life and light which gives and conquers and dispels the ignorance and blindness which we are captured in or captivated in it is that light which gives us hope in a dark age there's nothing like the the light or hope which comes in the middle of despair and discouragement that comes through Jesus Christ. I want you to be reminded of Jesus' own words as we think about the magnitude of what it is of Jesus becoming flesh. The assurance of that event, as he tells his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The unconquerable light, as we referred to last week, this light which, which enters into space and time and all the, the circumstances which we have seen will be carried out. It will, it will perform what it was sent to do. And we have assurance of that because Jesus will see to it. When he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He wants us to understand the gospel message and the kingdom of God will be carried out and accomplished through the sovereign, active work of God in our time. And we bring about the completion of this church age. And that's good news for us. It's good news because we deal with things that seemingly 
show themselves as weakness. We face a, a, a difficult task ahead of us if we just look at the commands that God has given to us in society. And yet in all of this, we are coming back to the assurance that God will carry out his program and agenda. But unlike the rising of the sun and the setting of it, we are more than spectators. And that's what you see in our context this morning. In fact, the coming of the light in the world is, is made ready. It's the preparation for this is by God giving to us a witness. Jesus taking on flesh or becoming the God-man. Coming into the world and how does God ready things? Well, he, he gives the world a preacher. He gives them John the Baptist to the witness that we find here in verse number 6. And on in the context we've read. Now it's not unusual for God to do that. And especially John to mention that. And I'll just mention these references. You can write these down or look these up in your own time. We won't take time to do that. But John continually brings us back to the truthfulness. The validity. The, the trustworthiness of the message of Christ. Through the continual witness that God has given to us. In fact we find... The witness of the Father in chapter number 5, verse 32, verse 37. The witness of the Son himself in chapter 8, verse 14 and 18. Uh, there's the witness or testimony of the Holy Spirit in chapter 15, verse 26. There's the witness of the works of Christ, John 3, where Nicodemus comes to, we know you're from God, nobody can do what you've done. And then we know that again in chapter 5, verse 36, and Later on as he's speaking to his disciples in the upper room. The testimony of scripture themselves in chapter 5 verse 39. The witness of the disciples chapter 15 verse 27. And the witness of John the Baptist in that text in front of us. And I want to say continually this is how God prepares the world for the light of the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. But I want to say that, that God continues the spread of the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ through the continual witness of the church. So if I could say it this way, it is the plan of God that the spread of the gospel, and by that I mean the light of Jesus Christ, be spread in this dark world across the nations through the accomplishment of the witness of the church. You are no mere spectator in God's design and plan. He is... Penetrating the darkness in our culture, across the continents, in our families, in our cities, in our little area here that we live. He is penetrating that through the witness, the, the obedient witness of the church as they share the testimony of Jesus Christ. All blessings of the gospel and benefits and joy and furtherance of the kingdom of God in this age in which we live is carried out through the active obedience of you and I this morning who know Jesus Christ. There's no second plan. There's no alternative route. There's no other thing that God is doing in the world. He is carrying out. He is spreading the light of the gospel among the nations through the active obedience of the church. It is for this reason that God has commanded, equipped us, the children of God and the church, not simply to be saved, nor to be the savior of the world, but to rescue through proclaiming salvation in Jesus Christ. 
And I hope we see some of that through the example given to us in John the Baptist. Notice with me in the text, and as we look at John the Baptist this morning, I want to say two things about him. We'll say a few more than that, but two things in particular. One, there's a distinctiveness about John the Baptist and his ministry. There's something unusual about him that you and I are not, nor will we ever be, nor are we meant to be. There's also a sameness, or there's also something that marks his ministry, I think, that ought to mark our ministry as well. And so we'll look at that uh, together. First of all, notice in verse number 6, the Bible says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now you'll have to, you'll have to forgive me if you think I, I'm speaking... Um, below your level of understanding but when he's speaking about john here he is not speaking about the author of the gospel of john the only reason i say that is sometimes we get those things confused there's a lot of johns in the world and in the bible here he's referring to john what we have come to understand is john the baptizer or john the baptist and and the unique ministry in which he he fulfilled john was is described and presented to us at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. In every gospel, something is conveyed about this unusual and uh, unique individual. Was in Luke, we find uh, the miraculous conception of John. Miraculous in the fact that both Zechariah and Elizabeth were well past the years of having children. And it is there as Zechariah is offering up prayers to God in the temple that, that the angel comes to him and and gives him this message, by the way, your prayers have been answered. And just by uh, personal application, God answers our prayers not on our time. Because I doubt he was going in praying, God give us a child at this point. Uh, we know that because he received the message in unbelief of the angel. Uh, but nevertheless, it was something that he and his wife had prayed for many years. And yet, here the angel says, God how answered your prayers but notice what the angel and how the angel describes this son which is to be born of Zechariah and elizabeth the bible says he will be great before the lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the holy spirit even from his mother's womb there's no other person in the bible where that is referred to like that there's no one else like john the baptist even from his birth and he speaks of his work. The angel goes on and says, He will turn many children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready before the Lord a prepared people. As It's enough to get news that you're going to have a child, but to know that this child is going to be great before the Lord, filled with the Holy Spirit, in the mother's womb, and on top of that, his ministry is going to be one of turning people's hearts back to the Lord. That restorative family and all the other things that flow from what John the Baptist was called to do. What an amazing anticipation of what the man would be like. We are like that with children, aren't we? They're born and we have all sorts of ideas and dreams. And when they're two and they're bumping their head on everything coming and going, a lot of our anticipation is, is kind of toned down a little bit. We're not sure and because they're clumsy or whatever the case may be. But here, John testified of who he will be by an angel of the Lord. And what do we find when we find him? 
but we find a wild man. Mark gives us in his short account of the John and as he is a grown-up man anticipating uh, as one ministering in the wilderness in the opening of his gospel. And I'll just read that for you, beginning of verse 4 of Mark 1. He said, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And no one ever says, let's do that diet in the Bible, do they? I mean, we've got all the other things that we've discovered that people ate in the Bible and it must be religious. But no one's ever said, let's do the locust thing. Well, what you find at the latter part of this is something of a, a, a mystery. He was... As in one sense, in our natural thinking, he was a wild man, not dressed in the fine clothing of the of the palaces or the or the temple or all the other places where you find dignitaries and people of importance. Here is a man clothed in camel's hair and and eating wild honey and locusts. One scholar observed together. Uh, speaking of this reference of Elijah in 2 Kings 1a, showing a similarity of the men, together they represent the spirit of a man, his contempt of ease and luxury, his revolt against the sinful generation and everything which caused him to dwell apart from men and to contemn their manners. He was a unique individual, and because of his power and his presence, many people flocked to him. They came from all over the region wondering who he is and what he has come to do. He is known for his preaching and baptism. Well, his ministry was one of preparation for the coming of the Messiah. In all of this, he plays a significant role in redemptive history. Not that we, play, we will never play that same place. We'll never be him in that way. But there are things about him that John gives to us here that I think are important for us. One, John doesn't speak about any miracles. He hardly mentions anything that John says. Uh, he is considered the greatest prophet of the old covenant. And yet many of the things which, which go around the idea of greatness and prophet, especially in the Old Testament, we don't find with, the, or with John here, John the Baptist. But what you do see in John, as he mentions to us in verses 6 and 7, is the simplicity of one who was sent from God. Notice again in our text, the Bible says there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. And John is described for us in simple terms. He's simply a witness, one whom God has sent out. Uh, in one way, we could say, well, that's prophetic as, as the other prophets were sent from God into the people, into the world. And, and so that's, that's something we would anticipate. Yeah, prophets are sent by God. It's true. In fact, we find in Romans a, a sense of familiarity in the language here. How will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without preaching, someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? 
As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not obeyed, all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. What we see in John's ministry was the logical need being met for the people of God. That how could they be turned back to God? How could they believe in God? How could they believe in the light in which God would send if they did not have someone to to speak to them in a language that they understood about the things which God was doing? He He was one sent from God, a witness to the things in which God was going to do. In some ways, it's easy for us to look at both the reference in Romans and that in John and say, well, that's good. God needs to raise up men to go do those sort of things. And I would say amen, and we should pray to that end. As a church, we ought to be actively praying that God would raise up men among us to proclaim the glories of Christ and preach the gospel message to the ends of the earth, both here and far off. Or in some way, be engaged in the help and 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 training of those who are thus called to do that. But I want us to understand what we come to of the Great Commission is that you and I all are sent to proclaim the glories of Christ and be a witness to what he has done. The Great Commission is not just a reminder of what the disciples are to do and Acts is not just something the disciples and the early church is to do, but all of us that have been saved by the grace of God is... is commissioned to bear witness to the testimony of Jesus Christ in this age. And in fact, that is the the way, the means in which the the light of the gospel and hope is spread. It's through the faithful witness of the obedience of the church. You and I, in that sense, are much like John, sent out from God to bear witness about the light. But I want us to notice, not only are they sent out, John has sent out something of the characteristics of his ministry, beginning in verse number 19. Let me just read these few verses for you. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests to him and Levites from the Jerusalem to ask who you are. Now, what he's referring to here is people of high standing, powerful people. These are Sanhedrin, those who are ruled over Jerusalem, those of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and, and we'll become more familiar with those terms and people as we go through the Gospel of John. Uh, but these are people who, who say stuff and stuff happens. Uh, these are the people that intimidated others. In a sense of fear and trepidation, they were marked as somewhat above others in the day in which John lived. As so I just want to note simply in the characteristics of John's ministry on the outset was he ministered with boldness. He ministered with boldness. You could write courage if you like that word better, but, uh, but Matthew gives us something of this in chapter number three. Why don't you turn with me, Matthew 3. Verses number, we'll begin verse number um, five. Matthew three, speaking of the boldness of John the Baptist, and 
It says, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about Jordan, about the Jordan, were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Welcome. I'm glad you're here. I got a nice seat up front you can sit and, and all of that. Notice what he says. You brood of vipers. Who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You almost want to be like John the Baptist. Pull him over to the side. Do you know who these guys are? Well, yeah, he knows who they are. But he stood with boldness, with courage, as he carried out his ministry of witnessing of the gospel of Christ. There's an element of, of boldness. He would not back off in fear of those who listened to him. He wouldn't play to others to, to hope that he could win their favor or please them in any way in that fear of man that oftentimes cripples us. It says, You brood of vipers who have warned you to flee to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. Jesus will say that later on. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to rise up children for Abraham. Let's think about our gospel witness. If we refuse to do what God has called us to do as a church, he'll raise up stones to carry out and do what we ought to do. Nevertheless, we see the boldness of the man here as he addresses the multitude that he stands in front of. But secondly, notice he is a man of urgency. He is a man of urgency. The church, if we are to, to capture any of the witness in which we ought to have for Jesus Christ in the day in which we live, there has to be an element of urgency in our life. Notice the language that he says as he goes on in verse number 10. He says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree for that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As if to say another way, the chainsaw is running. It's all filled up with gas and oil and it's laid to the, to the base of the tree. And at any moment, the man is about to chop it down. You see the urgency in his voice and in his language? Something that captured the idea that the hand of God, the, the coming of God is, is imminent it is at any moment. His hand is at the door. You see it again as he goes on and says in verse number 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his weed into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. He embodies the reality of Hebrews as he writes to us that today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time of the Lord. Here's a man who has, has the understanding that, uh, that our life is brief as we'll look at in just a moment. He preached with boldness. He preached with urgency. I don't know who I've heard it from, but one preacher had said one time, we have come to a place in society or the church began to look like a mediocre man standing in front of mediocre people telling people how to be more mediocre. We've lost passion and urgency and our burden. I think that's partly true. Especially when you find out early on in church history men standing up saying that they were dying men preaching to dying people. Well, that's the same people you witnessed. We are people witnessing to people whose life is brief and but a moment. 
So he preached with urgency and he preached with boldness. But thirdly, he, he proclaimed, he ministered back in John chapter 1, if you will, with humility and self-forgetfulness. Now, there is a lot of words here that seems a bit awkward for us because he's trying to say something emphatically. And one of the things he says emphatically, that the message which he carried was not him. He was not preaching John and how great John was. And he goes into detail that John bore witness about him and cried, this was of he whom I had said, he comes after me, referring not to himself, but those who were after him, he who was after him. Again, verse number 8, earlier he said he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Then as the men come to him, and you know, anybody like John the Baptist preaching the way he preached out in the wilderness, people's going to start asking questions, who in the world is he and who gives him the right to do what he's doing? And so they send their delegation out to him and say, who gives you the right to do what you're doing? Who are you? Are you the Messiah? I think they probably had their fingers crossed and saying, let's hope not. So how does John answer in verse number 20? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. You almost think of a positive message there, don't you? After saying he confessed and didn't deny, but he confessed. What did he confess? No, I'm not him. Israel is not looking for me as some messianic hope. I'm not the savior of the world. And there's something simple of that and helpful for you and me. Not that we live in the dispensation or the time in which John lived and ministered the way he ministered, but there is something to be reminded that what we share and what we witness is not ourselves and our ability to save anybody. Our humility is found in the fact of of knowing who is the Savior and who can save everybody or anybody. And that is Jesus Christ. So they come to him and said, you're the Christ? And he says, no, I'm not him. Then... What are you? Who are you? Are you the Elijah? Are you Elijah? And he says, no, not him either. Now, he was Elijah-like, came in the power of Elijah. He was not a reincarnated or, or a come-back-down Elijah that they were anticipating in their day. He says, I'm not him. Well, surely you're the prophet. Now, the prophet has reference to do back in Deuteronomy, in chapter number 18. No need to turn there. You can look that up. But Moses preaching, saying, after I'm gone, there's going to come a prophet after me. And so the Jewish mindset would be this Moses-like figure who would come and deliver the children of Israel and and lead them into freedom and, and all the other blessings and hopes that the Messiah would bring. John says, well, that's not me either. Now, why do you say humility? Notice verse number 22 and 23. Well, we got to give an answer to somebody. They sent us. we got to tell somebody. we got to tell who sent us. Who are you? What are you going to say about yourself? What does he say in verse 23? I am just a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. And the prophet saith, Isaiah saith. Not a face. Not a name. Not a significant person or anything about his person or personality or any of those things, he says, simply, I'm just a voice. I'm just one voice saying, prepare the way of the Lord. Now, 
the prophet Isaiah, the significance is there. The timing of John's ministry is that his message would be the Messiah is coming. Jesus, the Lord, is coming, bringing salvation with him, comfort with him. Make ready your hearts for the coming king. And so there is that significance. But in the humility, he's just simply saying, in all of this, I am just but a lowly voice. Adding to that, not only is he the lowly voice and his humility there, but it showed in his servanthood. In verse number 27, even he who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. We've been going in the uh, upper room discourse in our men's Bible study, and we went through the disciples' failure to wash Jesus' feet. In the days of the Jews, it was... It was understood that disciples would do anything that their teacher, their master, asked them except untie their shoe and unbuckle their shoe. That was beneath the disciples. That was for the servant. That's for the, the lowest slave of all. And John is saying, don't you see, even that would be too great of an honor for me to bear. You see, he come to understand the greatness of who he witnessed about. The greatness of who called him, the, the significant of who it was that come into the world. He, he come to understand something of the grandeur of this moment in which he lived. And he says, even in all of that, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoe and, and much less be a voice in the wilderness. And don't you see, that's the same mentality and attitude we're to have. As we witness, it isn't about us. It isn't about our morality or our goodness or how well we do in life or how poorly we've done in life. It, it, it brings us back. The, the church's witness is, is at the base of it about the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ. And the more we come to understand the, 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 the awesomeness and the privilege and the joy it is to just simply be a witness, I think the more joy... And fruitfulness we experience as a people. But not only did he preach with boldness and urgency and humility or forgetfulness. He preached with anticipation. Notice they ask him verse 25. What are you doing? Why are you doing these things? If you're, what gives you the right to baptize people if you're neither Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And John answered them. I baptize you with water. But among you stands one whom you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. What you see is a man who is anticipating the coming of the Lord. He's anticipating the moment when he will be baptizing and a dove will descend and God will say, that's the one. I, I don't know if he did that every day as he went out, as the multitude gathered, if he looked in the crowds and in the faces and, and wondering if today's the day the Lord will come back or the Lord will come, if today's the moment when, when he will be revealed to all mankind. I, I, I kind of think he ministered like it. He says he's among you now. But church, don't you understand our call to, to share the gospel of Christ is, is called infused with this reality that the Lord is coming. We anticipate his soon return. That all the labor and the, the, the effort and the, the prayers and all the energy that we give forth is not in vain for the Lord comes. Our whole ministry is marked by his soon return. 
In fact, we see in the book of Acts, as Jesus ascends into heaven, wouldn't you like to have been at that scene? And the angel says, why are you gazing up? I always say in my mind, you say whatever you want to. You can tell me later, I guess, but I'm here, so I'll tell you what I think when I read that. I think to myself, why wouldn't they be gazing up? Who's ever seen anything like that? Why wouldn't they be amazed that Jesus is here and then then he's like, why he's talking, he's gone. And they're just looking up, wondering what what in the world? And so what does the angel do? He sends them about to be busy with what the Lord has called them to do, and that is to be their witness to the ends of the earth. Friends, it is that reality of the soon return of the Lord which helps us. Now I want to give you a few ways in which we can cultivate these attitudes in our own life, I think. That we might have boldness and urgency. And that we might have humility and that we might have anticipation, the first of which is prayer. In the early church, as they faced the persecution and backlash of the leaders of their day, they prayed. They prayed that God would give them boldness to witness to the name of Christ. Paul asked prayers for the churches unashamedly saying, pray that God would give me an open door and give me utterance or clarity as I preach or as I speak the name of Christ. I would, I would say, if you want to pray for me in any way, pray that for me. That would be great. Because that is a spiritual work that God does in us. He, he works through the prayers of his people. Pray. We don't have boldness. We don't have urgency. We don't think about the, the anticipation of his return and all the other things. And we begin by turning from where we're at now through, through seeking God and his forgiveness and his help and those things. Pray. Pray for opportunity and clarity. Pray for a burden of the lost. You and I live, and, and I think those burdens we carry in life and ministry, they fluctuate. There's moments in our life or seasons in our life where it's all we thought about with those who are outside of Christ, who are standing in danger every hour and, and, and how that burdened us. And then there's other times where we don't think about it at all, if we're honest, right? Pray that God would open our eyes to the needs around us in that way. Pray for the salvation of the lost. And we must be obedient, but it is God who does the saving. Pray that God would work through us. Pray that God would work through our church. That God would use this place not only to be a light in discipleship and strengthening people in their faith and their walk with Christ. We want to do that. That's part of what we're supposed to do and want to do and part of the heart of our mission here. Oh, pray that we would be a witness, that, that we would be a place where people would come to know the Lord. Pray for our missionaries and their fruitfulness on the fields. What I'm saying to you is is these things are not cultivated. They're not natural to us in our natural tendencies. Seek God for the help in these areas and let the Spirit of God work through us. Pray. But I say, secondly, not only do we pray, but we grow in our knowledge in the fear of the Lord. And the reason we succumb to the fear of man and and our own self-importance or our own ego or whatever it may be is because we fear God less than we fear something else. Then we fear others. 
The answer is that we grow in our understanding of who God is and what he's done. Grow in our understanding of the gospel. Grow in our desire and delight to please him above others. It still doesn't mean you don't struggle with those things. We all do to some degree. But that I would rather please God more than I would rather please someone else. So we pray and we grow in our knowledge and fear of the Lord. Hey, you grow in your knowledge and fear of the Lord. One is read your Bible. Study it, meditate on it, let it sink in your hearts and minds, let it flow through you, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, is what Colossians says. Thirdly, I would say we need to recapture our contemplation of the brevity and the instability of life. The Gospels, the Bible writers remind us that life is but a vapor, it's only here for a moment. It isn't just the moment of 90 years or 100 years or 70 or 75 years, but it's the moment of 30 years or 26 years or 10 years or 8 years. It is not only but just brief or or just a moment. It is unstable or instable in the fact that we don't know what tomorrow holds. It, it very well could possibly be that one of you here this, this morning, this may be the very last sermon that you hear. This may be the last time you gather with the, the body of Christ and, and sit and worship and sing and have an opportunity, if you're not saved, to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we don't think about those things. We're, we're busy with everything else. Our mind is just constantly going. But, but we must recapture that contemplation of the brevity of life people you talk to, the people in your families, well, they hear but a moment. Tomorrow, as one preacher has wisely put it, is the devil's day. Because today is the day that God has given to us. All oh, that, that, would, that would stamp eternity, as Jonathan Edwards says, on my eyeball, so I'd be reminded not of the temporariness of this moment and the eternalness of the moment to come. I would encourage you and just remind you. And you say, well, that's kind of a dreadful thing to think about. But it is the truth, isn't it? It is something that corrects us and teaches us and helps us and motivates us. It is something that that stirs us on and even encourages us, especially in the deep darkness of valleys that we walk in this life. Oh, it's just but a moment and the morning comes. And I'm with my Lord. Not only contemplation of the brevity and instability of life. Fourthly, we cultivate these things through the contemplation of the outworking of the return of the Lord. You said that's a mouthful. I could have put it in one word. Maybe, but it's hard to put in one word. The outworking of the return of the Lord. What do I mean by that? Because when we think and as we anticipate the return of the Lord, there is that joy and judgment mixed together. There is for the saint this morning at Christ's return that that entrance into his kingdom, that that belonging, that that fellowship, that, that restoration of what we were meant to be back in the Garden of Eden, that new body and new life and all the ramifications of what it means to be born again. Goodness. But there's also at the return of the Lord the anticipation of judgment. 
And Paul, even reflecting on this, as he says, knowing the terror of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, he persuades to the second Corinthian church. In Jude, we find that many hating the garments being stained by the fire, pulling them, saving them. There's a reminder that at the Lord's return, those who are not in Christ Jesus will not enter into the joy of the Lord, but face the cup of his wrath, the outworking of the rejection of him. Dear friends, this morning as a church, I want to just remind you of these truths to help us, to instruct us, to guide us, to think about the world and people in the world and the ministry which God has called us to do and a way in which God has called us to do it. To be actively obedient and actively engaged in bearing a witness and a testimony, not just around the world as we send missionaries. That's awesome. We want that. But in our own community, in our own families, as we pray for them, as we plead with them to come to Christ, trust in Christ, as we continue to bear witness. Now, we do so in many different ways, I know. We do so through the lives we live in this community, the places you volunteer, the character and conduct of your life. We witness to the gospel in the way we love one another. The Bible says that. We witness by the gospel preaching week after week. And someone once said, you may have heard it, preach the gospel and if you have to, use words. How many of you heard that? Raise your hand. See, get you engaged this morning. How about that? That's absurd. That's absurd. Actually, the guy who they attribute to saying that never said that preached, I don't know, an insane number of times a week. He continued to preach the gospel, never saying that. What he was saying is, don't let your personal character and conduct out in the world disqualify your witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if we're going to be a witness, and like John the Baptist, we must be a voice. We must use words. We must share our faith. As we pray for others, giving out the reality of who Jesus is and what he has done for you. And I think we need to be challenged by that. Let me go back to what I said at the beginning of this. It is the plan of God that the spread of the gospel the light of Jesus Christ be spread in this dark world across the nations through the accomplishment of the obedient witness of the church. I heard a comment this week from a preacher. I said the church only has two, two missions, two objectives, two things that they must do in this world. It doesn't matter what... Uh, is going on in society it doesn't matter the political environment how favorable or uh, unfavorable that that the government is towards christianity it doesn't matter the pandemic or any of those other things just two things that's good keep it simple he said one is worship church is to continually offer worship up to god that's what we do when we gather this morning isn't it we come to worship our lord make much of his name magnify him, offer ourselves to him as a living sacrifice. Our whole life is lived out as a, an act of worship, devotion to God. That's what we do here. But he said the second thing that we must do despite what goes on is we must witness. We must witness. 
That is what we do out there when you walk out those doors. That is the life you live throughout this week. That is taking how God has spoken to you, how he's encouraged you and helped you and enabled you, taking that and carrying it to those who do not know it, have not received it, and need help by it. It is to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth wherever we go. Now, you may be like me and add a bunch of other stuff to that. But I think that's pretty simple and pretty clear and a good reminder for us that God's plan in bringing his light into the world and in its overcoming darkness is through the obedient witness of his people. And Jesus has come. Salvation can be had. Forgiveness of sin all through Jesus Christ. And I would pray that we would continue to grow in our obedience to that command and the character characteristics that that command takes to be fulfilled. Bow with me for a word of prayer. You've come this morning. So glad to have you with us and joining us as we go through this Gospel of John's account. You hear a message on the church must be a witness in the world in which we live in. We live in such a place that is with, with such an opportunity in our day unlike unlike the church has ever had. I pray for you here this morning that are Christians that you would act upon it. Pray that God would help you in these areas that you need to grow in and I need to grow in. But you may be here this morning and you may not be saved. You may not know who Christ is. The witness that we speak of is the fact that Jesus Christ came into the world to die and pay the penalty for your sin. Pay the penalty for disobedience, unfaithfulness, the lying and stealing and cheating and all the other things that we as humans have committed. And because he knew no sin and willing to take the place of sinners, uh, the gospel message, the witness that we carry is there's hope, there's forgiveness, there's, there's help found in him, but you must come to him. What I mean by come, I mean simply you must cry unto him, call on him. Romans 10 tells us, they that call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It is in the place where you're at in the mess in life that you're in or the not mess or whatever place you may be in life that you simply call on the name of the Lord, asking him to forgive you of your sins, to cleanse you and give you everlasting life. And the Bible says, as many have come to him, he will in no wise cast out. And so I just want to encourage you, if that's you this morning, would you even now, would you now turn to him and turn away from your sin? Would you now stop trying to do your own thing and put your faith and trust in him? You don't know what tomorrow holds. You don't know what this afternoon holds. I plead with you, come to Christ. The rest of us, I pray that God would use us in his kingdom. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your grace towards us. Oh, how good you have been to us. How you have promised us that even as we witness, our labor is not in vain because of your son and your return and your powerful work through our feeble attempts. We praise you for that. We pray that you would help us and continue to, to remind us of these truths. In Jesus' name.
Amen.